So in chapter 32, verse 15, this is that Moses, after this conversation with God, turned and went down from the mountain with the two tablets of the testimony in his hands. The tablets were written on both sides, and they were written on the front and on the back. And now the tablets were the work of God, and the writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. So the other thing that he got, not only the instructions for the tabernacle, but he got the the covenant laws written on two tablets. Now, he did not get two tablets of stone with five commandments on one and five commandments on the other. Okay? It says it was written on both sides. It probably is a lot more than the Ten Commandments at well. It might be the stipulations of the covenant because it's called the testimony, the tablets of testimony. It doesn't ever say the Ten Commandments. It's the tablets of testimony. So it could be all the covenant laws that we just went through in chapter 20 through 24 and all those laws and requirements. That's the real covenant. And it's written on both sides. The reason he has two tablets is because it's two copies. This is very important. It's a covenant. And then the same way that when you sign that, like giant contract for your house and you feel like you're just hoping to God you're not signing your firstborn in your life away because no way you can read all that. You get two copies, right? And they will have you sign a whole bunch and then you sign another copy and they keep one for their records and they give you this giant thing. And you're like, great, I got to put this in my filing cabinet now for years. You get two copies, one for each party in the covenant. That's what's happening. So one copy is going to go in the Holy of Holies once it's done, and that's God's copy. And the other copy is going to go somewhere where the people can see it, and that will be their copy and their reminder. That's what he's coming down with, is the, the, the both copies of it. As he's coming down, verse 17, when Joshua heard the noise of the people, as they shall remember Moses, Joshua had gone halfway up, it is a sound. Do you ever wonder what Joshua was doing for 40 days? <laughs> He's up halfway on this mountain, like completely by himself. Like, is God talking to him too? Um, we, we're never given into that insight. Um, hope you had a really good book. <laughs> Joshua is halfway. He hears the noise and he doesn't know what it is. So he says, um, it sounds like the sound of war in the camp. And Moses said, it is not the sound of those who shout for victory, nor is it the sound of those who cry because they are overcome, but the sound of singing I hear. When he approached the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, Moses became extremely angry. He threw the tablets from his hands and broke them to pieces at the bottom of the mountain. He took the calf that they had made and he burned it in the fire and ground it to powder, poured it on the water, into the water, and made the Israelites drink it. So Moses is very angry. It's one thing to know about it. It's almost like... It's almost a good thing that Moses didn't see it before he decided to intercede on their behalf. So he's interceding. He knows it's happening, but it's another thing to see it, that these are the people that you have so emotionally invested into. And it's like, and you come down and he sees it. Now he breaks the stone tablets. That is not like, there's no reason to see that as a sin or something inappropriate. Um, it's actually very symbolically appropriate. They had just broken the covenant. He breaks the covenant testimony tablets. Nowhere does God ever judge him, condemn him, rebuke him, or anything for that action. Even when he talks about in Deuteronomy, there seems to be no sense of like, all oh, what I did was wrong. And so it's a very, very, very appropriate action. In fact, there are many times throughout the Bible where God is going to tell Israel to smash and destroy things in a symbolic kind of a way to represent broken covenants or broken nations or whatever. 
And so th- don't interpret this as, I mean, there's no reason, there's no evidence in the Bible to give us any thought of why this should be an impulsive, overreacting, emotional thing that he did. Yes, God wrote these with his own hands, but it was very appropriate for that. I mean, remember, God was about ready to kill them all. I don't think he's going to be really upset about broken tablets. And so he breaks it. Now, when he sees a golden calf, remember, it's made out of wood, but it's gold-plated. So it's not going to, it's going to burn down. He throws the ashes in the water and makes them drink it. I'm not saying this is good parenting, but it would be the equivalent of like catching your kids smoking cigarettes and you're like, oh, you want to smoke cigarettes? And you make them smoke like an entire pack right then and there. And probably most likely they'll never touch a cigarette ever again in their life after smoking that much at once. And so it's symbolic as well. Like you want you have to realize that idolatry is not just something you do. Idolatry is something that becomes a part of you. So if you really want this idol, then fine, here is the idol. And he makes him drink it. You think, like, that's one golden calf. There's, like, at least twenty-eight to 78,000 people there. You feel like, are they really going to get much of the golden calf in their water as they're drinking it? Don't know. Is it possible God just, like, reproduces it. Is it possible the golden calf is way bigger than we could ever imagine? I have no idea. The reality is it goes in the water. And so part of it might be like, that might make you a little bit sick. And so it could kind of remind them that, one, if you want to go into idolatry, it is not good for you. It's not healthy. Two, the idea is it's like kind of input-output, that this is really all it is. It's nothing but a bunch of crap, what you're doing. And so there's a lot of different ideas of what he might be doing there as he's trying to teach in this lesson. But either way, it shows that he is rightfully and justly angry at them. They have clearly violated the covenant, and there is a requirement for this to be destroyed. So, verse 21. Moses said to Aaron, What did this people do to you that you have brought on them such a great sin? And notice... He's kind of giving him a benefit of doubt. Like, how in the world, Aaron, do you go from the guy that, like, was actually willing to follow God into the plagues, and I wasn't? I was the guy who was like, I'm not going to do it. And you're the guy who was like, sign me up, Lord. You stood next to me with the plagues, never wavering in faith. What is it that a people could actually do to make you change so drastically and go into this idolatry? Now, the real reason we know is that no matter how on board Aaron is, Aaron wants the favor of God as well as the people. It's so clear that by building a golden calf, he, wants, he fears them, slash wants their acceptance, approval, whatever. But on the other side, but the fact that he says, we're, we're going to worship Yahweh with this, means that he wants to please God too. And so he's not like a bad, anti-God kind of person who's shaking his fists at God and waking away. He's basically what you and I do most of our time. We try to please people and try to please God at the same time. And we try to reconcile those. And this makes it very clear that God has no room for us trying to please both with our actions, our behavior, the way we dress, the way we buy things, whatever it is. That God is not pleased with that. And so... Aaron shows that he is not willing to stand up for his faith in front of people, like Moses is. He's not anti-God. He hasn't walked away from God. He's just not brave enough to really face off with the people and truly stand up for God. And so this is what Moses is kind of calling him out on. 
Aaron said, Do not let your anger burn hot, my lord. You know these people, and they tend to do evil. Now, what did he just do there? He passed the blame. You see this theme all throughout the Bible, from Adam and Eve all the way through. It's not my fault, and that's exactly what we do all the time. He's passing the blame off, except he's more subtle and civilized about it. Like, Adam and Eve just straight up is like, it's their fault. He's like, you know these people. They're evil. They're rebellious. He didn't quite say it's all their fault. He's just kind of like, it's a fact, right? You can't deny that. So he passes the blame off. They said to me, make us gods so that they will go before us. For as for this fellow Moses, the man who brought them up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has happened to him. So I said to them, Whoever has gold, break it off. So they gave it to me, and I love his answer. And I threw it into the fire, and out came this golden calf. <laughs> it's not my fault, it's the fire. I just said, get your jewelry together, and let's throw it in. It's like, if God really didn't want this to come out, then he should have never let it happen. I mean, isn't he the God who controls the fire? And so it's like, seriously, did you just come up with that answer? And so, but you understand there might be, not be totally a silliness here, he might really truly be trying to pass this off because it was not uncommon for ancient people in the cultures to like do something like that and think whatever came out is what the gods wanted you to worship. They're notorious for doing that kind of stuff. And so he may be trying to pull some of that stuff or whatever, but either way, he's passing the blame on me. He's basically saying, this is what they wanted. I just said, hey, let's get some jewelry together. And out came this thing. What am I to do about it? So he's clearly not taking responsibility. So Moses saw the people were un, um, running wild, for Aaron had said, "Let them go completely." Had let them go completely out of control. Some people say that this is involving like giant sex parties and that kind of stuff, because that is typically what would happen in some other cultures doing these things. But that word doesn't really. I mean, I'm not saying that wasn't happening because we don't know, but there's no reason to force that and say that definitely is happening. Really, it's just they're running wild. And you don't need to have all the inappropriateness. The idolatry is already inappropriate enough. So Moses stood at the entrance of the camp and said, Whoever is for Yahweh, come to me. And all the Levites scattered around him. And he said to them, Thus says Yahweh, the God of Israel, Each man fasten his sword on his side, go back and forth from the entrance to entrance throughout the camp, and each one kill his brother and his friend and his neighbor. Now, this is huge because he says, who's with me? Who is willing to stand up against the idolatry? And who stands next to him? The Levites. Now, it might be partly due to the fact that Moses is of the same tribe as them. But what's interesting is, remember going back in Genesis, the Levites are the ones who violently murdered all the Shechemites for one man's sin. Shechem raped Dinah, and he was the only one who was guilty. Maybe the father for supporting it, or not defending, or um, rebuking it. So they used the Abrahamic covenant. They said, hey, join the Abrahamic covenant, and you can be a part of us. And then they went out and killed him instead. So they said, get all circumcised. The circumcision was a sign of joining in a covenant with God, where you were to be a blessing to them, so they could experience the blessings of God. They used the covenant of God to murder innocent people, 
to physically wound them and murder. That's evil. That's the equivalent of inviting people into your church just so you can kill them. And so that's what they did. And because of Simeon and Levi's actions in this, in chapter 49 of Genesis, God directly cursed them and said, you get nothing. You get no inheritance, no land, nothing. You will get the blessings of being a part of the nation as a whole, but you will get nothing personal. So Levi and Simeon are directly cursed for their violence. And yet in this scenario, they're the ones standing up. They're the ones siding with God. They're the ones willing to face off on the people and now defend the covenant and protect the covenant of God. This is a huge change as a tribal people. And what's really interesting is that God doesn't take away their violence. He redeems their violence. And he's going to use it for a different purpose. Because he doesn't say, don't go and kill people, stop that. Now, granted, I'm not saying that they can do whatever they want now. But now he's divinely sanctioning them to kill people as a punishment for their idolatry. And so God just, he doesn't change them and stop them. He redeems them. And he uses what they're already good at, already what they're wired of, and he just points them in a different direction. And they side with them. They go out. Now, the Levites did what Moses ordered, verse 28. And that day about 3,000 men of the people died. And Moses said, you have been consecrated today for Yahweh, for each of you was against his son or against his brother, so he was given a blessing to you today. Now, you need to understand what's happening. God is not killing all of them for idolatry because he's already made it very clear that he's not going to do that. He's not just killing only the people who are involved in idolatry because it's hard to believe that only 3,000 out of the 78,000 people were doing that, and that would make God so angry that he'd be willing to wipe out the entire nation. All throughout the text, it makes it very clear that pretty much almost everybody is involved in this. And remember, God is a just God. He's not even willing to wipe off Sodom and Gomorrah off the face of the map, even if there's just five righteous people left in the city, and or ten. And so if he's willing to save an entire city that's horribly evil and has been evil for a long time for the sake of ten righteous people, there's no way he's going to wipe out his covenant people who make a mistake one time just for the actions of 3,000 people. So it's very clear in the context that almost the entire nation is involved in idolatry. The entire nation has been forgiven of the death penalty. So who's dying here? The people who are dying are the unrepentant ones. It's the ones who were involved in a sin and shook their fist at God and said, you know what, screw you. Now, how do I know this? This is a clear theme throughout the Bible. We are always constantly under the judgment of the covenant. But the, and God's forgiveness has been clearly laid out through the cross. But the only people, even though Christ's death and resurrection forgiveness has been made to all and all have been forgiven of their debt of the golden calf worship, so to speak. Who are the only people who can participate in that forgiveness? Those who repent. And God has made it very, very, very clear, as much as he stays your execution, as much as he offers you forgiveness for your sins, that forgiveness can only be enjoyed through genuine repentance. And so when most of the nation sees Moses coming down and realizes they're facing judgment. And they see what Moses is doing, burning the golden calf, destroying the Ten Commandments. The Levites are coming up with them, the swords. Most of them repent. Most of them, who Moses is interceding on their behalf and provided them forgiveness, 
most of them receive it. Just like Jesus is interceding your back your half, and then you have to receive it. Most of them receive it. But there's 3,000 people who say, I won't accept it because I don't repent. They're the ones dying. Because if you refuse to follow God in faith, you're always under the law, and the law will always kill you. The only way you can be free from the penalty of the law is through repentance. And notice it's even true of David. David should have died for his sin against Bathsheba and Uriah. But because he repented, the law got stayed, and he didn't get executed. And you see that theme all throughout the Bible. God offers forgiveness, and you have a choice. I'll either accept God's forgiveness or I'll reject it. If you accept it, you get love and grace and forgiveness. If you reject it, you get death. And that's what the two books in Revelation are. The one book is the book of the Lamb, those who have accepted the cross, and the other book is the book of the law. And if you say, I don't want the Lamb, then you're basically saying, then I'm going to go with the law. And when you can't stand up and measure up to the law, the law kills you. And you need to understand that theme is all throughout the Bible. You only have two, you're all guilty of death. You're all guilty of death. And, the, and you're all going to face the law. And you're either going to face the law through Christ, who met all the requirements of the law, or you're going to face the law all by yourself, which will always destroy you and judgment. And so when Moses says, I have offered you the forgiveness of God, you either can join in that or you can refuse it. And 3,000 said, I don't want it. Moses <clears throat> seems awful specific about who's to die. I mean, it sounds kind of like they're random. Yeah, you're supposed to run back and forth and just start slashing. And that, that's mostly just like a phrase of saying, it'd be the equivalent of me saying like, go out there and kill the people who were involved in this and refuse to repent. I don't care if it's your brother, your mom, and that kind of everybody dies because our first thought is like well only the men right you can't go up and kill children and how hard would it be to kill your own brother if you refuse to repent and I think that's more what the idea is going on most scholars believe that this is just like a a phrase of we would say like well but mom everybody's doing it well no they're not <laughs> but we use phrases like that all the time even when we get to Deuteronomy God basically says kill them all women and children and everybody um, but that might be of an idea of just anybody. And even then, there's this idea of only those who are unrepentive. Only those who are unrepentive. In your notes, it talks about back and forth means uh, careful and systematic. So it's more of going back and forth, not just going crazy and systematically finding out who's repenting and who's not. Yes, thank you. And so it's more the intentionality. Don't miss anybody. Don't miss anybody. And so they go out and they do it. There's a balance here. This is a lot of people who die. No matter what, five people is a lot to die, especially when your own hand and your own sword is responsible for executing that. So don't get me wrong. I'm not trying to diminish the death here. But the other thing you have to understand is that 3,000 in light of 78,000 people is not really a lot. It is on one end horrifically a lot. But on the other side, when the entire nation should have died, 3,000 is not a lot. And, and I know that might sound very callous, but that's just the reality of the things. But here's the other thing you must realize. A lot of people who are not Christians throw this in our face and say, your God, who is loving and merciful, 
just wiped out 3,000 people because they wouldn't follow him. One, you have to realize who God is and what his right is. I keep saying that over and over again. Two, you have to understand how horribly evil our sin is in the face of a righteous God. That's something that we'll never be able to relate to and something we'll never be able to help anybody else understand because we can't understand ourselves. But the other thing that you must understand is a lot of that doesn't speak to an atheist because they don't have any concept of God. They don't want to have any concept of God. They don't care about sin. But one thing that can speak to any American is they signed a contract. They clearly signed a covenant saying, if we violate these commands, you can kill us. The amazing part of it is not that 3,000 people are being killed by God. The amazing part is only 3,000 people are being killed by God. And yes, it's tragic, and yes, it's horrific, and whatever objections or emotional response you think you have is nothing compared to what the God of the universe who created them loved them is having. But the reality is this. If we let 3,000 people out of their contract through, just, okay, whatever, (laughs) You violated the contract, but you know what? I'm going to forgive all 3,000 of you for violating the contract. We'd be like, wow, that's amazing. But when God does it, they're like, how dare you? How can you kill them? They signed a contract. They pledged their life to God, and they said, we know what the Ten Commandments are. Yes, we'll agree to everything. And as they're killing the animal, they're saying, it may be done to us as what's being done to this animal if we violate the contract. You can't judge God for that when that's clearly was laid out in the stipulations. And so he goes through and he kills them. And then a plague comes through. And now the plague affects everybody because despite this, everybody was still involved. Now the plague doesn't say about anything about anybody dying. But the plague does say that everybody was affected by it. So there's still consequences. Okay, You may kill somebody and be forgiven by God and still go to heaven, but you're still going to go to jail too. There's still consequences. And so the plague goes through. Now, what, this is what you must understand. According to Numbers chapter 3, verses 12 through 13, from this point on, Israel has lost the right to be priest. Even though he's forgiven them of death, he has not forgiven them of the blessings of the covenant. They still violate the covenant, and the covenant said you will be a kingdom of priests, and they lost that right. And so from this point on, he's eliminated the firstborn of every family of being priests. They will no longer be priests. The only people who get to be priests are the Levites. And that's because they stood next to Moses. And so where Levites were originally being punished at the end of Genesis, they're now being blessed with an incredible privilege at the end of Exodus. And you must understand that, that God's ideal was for everybody to be priests. But they all lost that right because they chose to worship a different God rather than represent Yahweh. And the only people who stood up, the Levites, are the ones who get to be the priests. And so now the Levites have gone from the most cursed tribe in all of Israel to gaining the greatest privilege and blessing that anybody could ever have in any nation, direct access to God. What is the point here? God can and wants to redeem anybody, even the most cursed, even people that he has previously condemned and judged. He can and wants to and will redeem anybody. Now, what's interesting is you've got two stories here because you've got Simeon. And what you're going to see is Levi is going to keep experiencing redemption, 
But Le- Simeon's going to keep choosing to go the same path. And you're going to have a tale of two tribes, so to speak. And one will continually go down that dark path, and the other one will continually get closer to God, so to speak. And so that's an interesting story here. And you have that same idea with Judas and Peter, too. Both of them rejecting God. Both of them deserve to be completely cut off from the blessings. One repents and is accepted back, and the other one refuses to repent, and he dies in his sins. And that's a constant theme throughout the Bible. 